Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good day, everybody. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks uh, to the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, World Affairs Council for having us all here. Uh, what I'd like to talk about today really is China's political economy. I'd like to give you somewhat of a new perspective on what perhaps China's rise, China's international ascent means for the world and the United States in particular. Uh, this specific talk is actually based on a volume I just edited, which is termed China's Emerging Political Economy, Capitalism in Dragon's Lair, it just came out earlier this year, and another book I'm working on uh, that probably will be entitled Sino-Capitalism. Uh, I'll proceed in three basic parts. I will first quickly get into the China debate, then talk about the concept of Sino-Capitalism, what do I actually mean with this, and then conclude uh, with a few very brief remarks about what I call the China quandary, uh, how China will influence the global system in the next few decades. Quite simply put, this is a graph uh, about economic history. Uh, it's put together by an economic historians. These figures are in PPP for the ones who are into these issues, purchasing power parity. What it means, it actually overstates China's economic might to some extent uh, because exchange rates are different from the ones we have right now. Nonetheless, if you look at this, it starts in 1850. Probably the ones in the back can quite see that. And it goes until 2000. So this is over 150 years of economic growth. This is basically modern capitalism. And what you see in the kind of turquoise light, uh, this is the United States. Takes off in about 1880, is already the biggest economy then, and really just goes up exponentially uh, with the exception of the 1930s. And becomes by far the biggest economy in the world. But if you look further to the right, further to the present, you see this kind of purple line, which is China. And China, although quite a big economy in the 1970s, by 1980, again, like the United States, takes off, grows, in a sense, almost exponentially, and catches up with the United States up to about two-thirds. The final one that's interested is the red one, which is Japan. Japan also takes off, but then kind of really petters out towards the 1990s, 2000s. This is Japan's lost decade. Uh, some people actually predicting that the United States might face a similar prospect in the next decade, meaning that this line will kind of petter out that China continues to grow. I have one Chinese colleague, uh, Shen Dingli from Fudan University, who's predicting that by 2020, in aggregate size, China will be as big as the United States. I would argue that's a bit uh, early on. Uh, well, it probably will be a few more years, but 2020, 2030, sometime in that decade, China will rival the United States in total economic size. Now, this has created a debate. What do we really mean? Uh, will China be a friend? Uh, will it be a major market, a boom for Chinese, uh, for American businesses? Or will China become a threat? Uh, will China be something resembling the Soviet Union, another kind of evil empire that really threatens the United States' international and global role? I would argue that the truth lies in the middle here. We have to think more in terms of gray than in terms of black and white. Uh, indeed, what I'm trying to do is take a political economy perspective and apply that to China's rise. And what I argue is that what is coming is, is a form of capitalism that I term Sino-capitalism, 
which is a global capitalist system, but that differs from Anglo-American capitalism, the capitalism that we're used to here in the United States, uh, the kind of, uh, you know, Kudlow and company, laissez-faire capitalism, but as you've seen in the last few weeks, that's kind of disappearing as well. Um, but anyway, a capitalism that works quite differently uh, from the one that we're used to in the U.S. Why so? First of all, Sino-capitalism is distinguished by really a very strong function for the state. This is a top-down coordinating function by the government. Uh, and in, in the Chinese political economy, it's quite clear that the government owns most big companies and most companies in strategic sectors. So Sino-capitalism assigns the Chinese state a leading role in fostering and guiding capitalist accumulation. One of the ironies of the last decade is, yes, the Chinese private sector has grown very large, but at the same time, the state sector has actually grown even larger and even richer. Uh, Chinese state-owned companies as a whole are enormously profitable. They produce 6% of GDP in profits each year for the Chinese government. Um, another irony, the Chinese government does not get dividends. It's getting them now, this year. This is the first year the Chinese government is getting dividends. So actually all those profits remained with the enterprises who then reinvested it and reinvested it, accounting for the very high investment ratios you find in China. Um, this really goes back a bit to China's imperial and socialist legacies. Uh, you had a command economy where the state basically controlled the whole economy. And so what I would argue is that the state-dominant nature of China's political economy of China's capitalism will remain for us for the foreseeable future. In other words, basically as China emerges on the global scene, it emerges as a form of state-guided or state-coordinated capitalism. I sometimes say, imagine 30 Frances, 30 times France emerging on the global scene, France being also a very state-dominated type of capitalism. However, this capitalism is also very vibrant. It's very entrepreneurial in a kind of bottom-up fashion. You have a form of network capitalism that is really the mainstay of China's private sector. And this private sector relies on informal business networks rather than on legal codes and transparent rules. Uh, we'll hear more about that from Alison Connor in her talk on China's legal system. Most private enterprises rely on guanxi, uh, which are kind of social connections, but there's a real art to that in China, and common Chinese cultural norms to support these networks and also give businesses a sense of certainty, a sense of predictability. So it is a very highly entrepreneurial system that gives Chinese firms a lot of flexibility. So these private firms are enormously flexible, and they also have global reach. Some of these networks uh, come in many different forms. Uh, one of them, for example, is a high-tech network that integrates Silicon Valley with Shenzhou in Taiwan and the Kunshan Triangle in Shanghai. Uh, this network produces most of your PCs and your laptops. So if you have a laptop, most of it comes out of this Silicon Valley doing the software, Shenzhou doing the hardware, design, and Kunshan in Ch China doing the actual manufacturing, the actual assembly of laptops and PCs. Sino-capitalism, if you want to understand it in simple terms, really has a very deep imprint uh, from China's history. There are some historical parallels uh, to China's imperial political economy, starting in the late Song Dynasty, this is about 13th century, 12th century, right up until the Qing Dynasty in the 19th century. You have a very dominant state and subservient private interests, subservient private capital and middle classes. This is a very simple kind of graphical display of that. Uh, historians would hate me for doing this. Um, but what you see is really a tributary state that is like an umbrella 
over the whole political economy and then very distributed kind of merchants, small-scale merchant capital that I kind of express in 25 cents and one dollar signs here. The difference to China's imperial political economy is that China's international emergence in the last three decades is, was in the era of globalization. This is a highly globalized era in which China has emerged. And so this political economy looks actually quite different from 19th century because China really is a, is a big, huge trading state. It's the third largest trading state in the whole world. Uh, so Germany, number one, United States, number two, China, number three. And China is now the fourth largest economy in the world, probably soon to overtake Germany uh, in the next few years for sure. Since 2000, China and the West, the industrialized countries, really have developed some beneficial synergies. Basically, we in the United States have gotten low inflation and high corporate profits. This is the Walmart economy. China, on the other hand, has gotten growing trade, technological sophistication, and rapid capital accumulation. This accumulation of capital is not only in the hands of private interests, private businesses, and private individuals, but also in the hands of the state, signified or expressed by the fact that China's foreign exchange reserves are now 1.18 trillion US dollars and probably will reach about 2 trillion by the end of the year. Um, ironically, this means that perhaps the largest capitalist in the world is the Chinese Communist Party. So the Communist Party is the largest capitalist. You make sense of that. Finally, I don't really have to point this out, but it's very important to note that what China is doing in terms of the overall process, of the overall effort to build capitalist institutions, this is really quite similar to what Bismarck's Germany did in the late 19th century, or Meiji Japan in the late 19th century, or South Korea and Taiwan during the 50s and 60s and 70s. There's some real clear institutional historical parallels to that. But the difference is that China is much bigger and it's happening much faster. So never has the world seen such an important political economy rise within such a short time span with such global influence. One of the implications is, is that China is emerging on the world scene as a relatively immature political economy, and I'll talk about this later. You have 1.3 billion people, one-fifth of humanity, and China, as you clearly know, it's a major economic player, and anything that happens in China will influence the world. I remember like five, six years ago when you turned on CNBC, China showed up a bit, but now basically China is there every day about all kinds of issues, commodities, global demand, consumption, currency, etc. So rather than portraying China's emergence as a potential threat or as a potential boom, I would say one way of looking at it is that what we're getting is capitalism versus capitalism. China is not the Soviet Union. We cannot contain China. We cannot contain your biggest you know, creditor. It doesn't really work. So this is not the China threat. Rather, it's a form of two different capitalist systems clashing and also merging with each other, benefiting from each other, but also having certain conflicts. And certainly, China's conflicts with its trading partners are rising. You have problems in China's legal system. We'll hear about this later. Different business ethics, role of the state in China's political economy. I already talked about that. And Ambassador Burkhardt just mentioned international currency policy, especially the value of the Chinese renminbi or Chinese yuan. Uh, this is a major currency in the world, but it's managed by the government. The exchange rate is still managed by the government, very much so. And that has caused all kinds of problems. So we had a beneficial synergy between China and the advanced industrial economies, and this is perhaps coming to an end. The difficulty is we're in a liquidity crisis. We're in a credit crunch right now. 
And liquidity crises or credit crunches tend to be deflationary, meaning they, they tend to actually cause a system in which prices, and we've already seen that asset prices are dropping, uh, where we get a deflationary spiral. And Japan has been living with this for the last one and a half decades. So I don't really know whether my prognosis is right or not, but perhaps longer term, 10 years down the road, it's very likely that China's former influence, which was deflationary, which pushed down prices for the most of the goods that we consume in the United States, that that will end. Because China has high domestic inflation, Chinese labor costs are rising, the Chinese currency is appreciating, and finally China itself, by its huge global demand for resources, is becoming an inflationary influence. It's driving up commodity prices, oil and gas most not notably. So China's influence is likely to become more inflationary, and this good situation, this kind of Goldilocks economy of low inflation and high corporate profits might be difficult to sustain. I end with the China quandary. I don't have much time here, but uh, I would like to point out that China's rise in Sino-capitalism raises a whole uh, lot of other issues. I just pointed to one that's very economic, but you have domestic challenges. Basically, China needs to develop a constitutional system. For me, it's not so much about democracy, Democracy is a complicated word, a lot of different meanings attached to it, but it's about constitutionalism. It's about a government that writes laws and then itself keeps to them, uh, in a sense, having an independent uh, legal body. Uh, again, Alison Connor will speak more to this. Global economic management, how do you give the Chinese a seat at the table? And most importantly, will the Chinese support the international liberal trading system that the United States and Great Britain built up since the Second World War. This is a major issue. The geopolitical equation, uh, Ray Burkhardt talked about this. How will China behave? How will they build a huge navy that will rival the United States? Uh, how will they assure themselves uh, access to sea lanes of communication? These are all kinds of issues that will come up, uh, that have come up with other capitalist developers before, Germany, Japan. This is a major issue. And finally, and perhaps most um, seriously, is global ecology. Uh, we'll hear from Kangwu just in a moment that China will probably become the largest emitter of greenhouse gases this year, next year, but very soon. So the fundamental question is, as Sino-capitalism becomes a new force in the global system to be reckoned with, can the world's established powers adapt and adjust? Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'd like to thank the World Affairs Council for organizing this event. I'm very happy to share with you uh, a few things about uh, the energy issues in China. Uh, we are living today in a very high kind of energy price and uh, kind of era, and also the energy price, oil price in particular, really, really volatile. Uh, actually, less than 10 years ago, on, uh, roughly less than 10 years ago, we had uh, the WTI the, uh, oil prices about less than $15 per barrel. And now, uh, five, uh, 10 years later, a few months ago, it rose uh, more than 10 times uh, to reach uh, nearly $150. But today, it dropped down to $92 again, or $91. It's, enough, it's kind of 50% drop uh, for a matter of uh, uh, two or three months. So it indicating that uh, the oil prices, energy prices, are really high and volatile. And this will really affect uh, the U.S., which is the largest energy-consuming countries and lar large, largest oil-consuming countries, and also China, which is the second largest energy-consuming country and oil-consuming country. Uh, this chart gives you an idea of the, the, the overall energy consumption uh, by fuels. This is a commercial 
which is non-commercial like biomass was now showing. Uh, it, um, comparing the U.S. and China that, uh, uh, although China is the second largest oil consuming country, but it's only consume a little over one third of the U.S. dust. It's uh, seven and a half million barrels per day versus over 20 million barrels per day used in, in this country. But if you compare energy of the, these two countries, China also the second largest, but it's about 80 percent, 75, 80 uh, percent of the U.S. dust. So it's really uh, it's a different story. And, and also because this is a structure where the coal accounts for 70 percent of the total, China is already uh, this year, some people say last year, uh, the Chinese government didn't quite agree uh, with that, that China is the largest emitter of uh, carbon uh, in the world because of the structure of the energy consumption, not because of the total energy consumption. In the U.S., we use about 25% of natural gas. In China, natural gas consumption is only 3.5% uh, versus 70% uh, uh, coal. Oil is 20%. Uh, nuclear power is under 1%, although it's growing very fast. So the challenge for China is how to deal with the 70% coal consumption. And the bigger challenge is the future. And here is uh, my projection by 2020 to show that to match the 7%, maybe to 9% average GDP growth for the next uh, 10, 20 years, China needs energy. Even with a below one-to-one -one comparison, one-to-one uh, -one relationship, China needs a higher uh, uh, energy consumption growth than most of the country, and certainly higher than the U.S. And so the challenge for China is not only how to deal with the current situation of 70% of coal consumption, which is damaging the uh, environment, but also how to deal with the even much bigger uh, energy consumption in, a, in the next 10 years. And uh, it's pretty certain that although the oil consumption in China will not catch up with the U.S., maybe for the next 20 years, is uh, because of a big gap, but energy consumption only in a few years, maybe after 2010, China will be the largest energy consuming country in the world. And, and China is facing a kind of very difficult situation in a sense that how to, how to deal with the, the sheer amount of energy consumption and also what we call, what I call a strategic mismatch of what is available in a country which is solid fuels, uh, uh, coal, versus the, the modernization of the economy which needs more liquefied liquid fuels and uh, gases, and, and also renewable power, and that's the big challenge. Um, of course, Chinese government, China has done a lot of work in promoting renewables and uh, alternative fuels, but given the sheer amount of energy needed, that kind of efforts, the impact is very limited. We can come back to that, that during the Q&A if there's more questions. Uh, here I show the oil and gas uh, um, sector uh, briefly. The reason I'm showing that is Although China is a big energy user and, and a big energy importer too, um, the import of energy mainly in oil and now growingly, uh, gradually in gas in a way, because China is still self-sufficient in coal consumption. But China is heading towards a net coal importer, perhaps starting next year. That's a big change because China has been a net exporter of coal for decades. Now it's heading towards a net importer of coal. Of course, they don't import a lot because they already produce 2.5 billion tons of coal every year, and they are going to produce maybe 3 billion tons towards the next couple of years, but their demand is much higher. But if you look at the oil, it's getting close to like the U.S. or uh, some other countries. China dependent on imported oil for 50% of the 
consumption now. Compared to like 65% maybe, around 65% for the US, but China is heading towards, because their production of oil, a bit like the US, you know, it's not uh, maybe a little better than the US in the sense that they are not declining, but they're not increasing uh, very fast at all. They're kind of stagnated in oil production, but their demand is growing like 5% on average uh, compared to like 1% here over next, or less than 1% uh, over next uh, uh, 10, 20 years. So the gap, you can see that, is getting bigger and bigger. So China's uh, dependence ratio is moving towards 55, 60, 65, 70%. It's moving up. It's more, maybe even uh, higher than the U.S. import uh, dependence. And here, the natural gas situation, China has a very small base and far smaller than the U.S., smaller than Japan and uh, some other Asian countries which cons uh, consume more gas. Um, even this area that China is also heading towards a net importer. Although domestic production is much better, uh, much has better prospects in terms of the future growth in, in uh, natural gas production in China, which also means a lot of opportunities. If you want to go invest in China for natural gas sector, or what they call the coal methane sector, is, very, is, is, a, is a high growth area. Still, they need to import. And first, they already started importing liquefied natural gas LNG. Uh, into um, uh, Guangdong, and they are building three more terminals. And uh, actually, up to a dozen more terminals being proposed. But given today's high natural gas price environment, we doubt you know that those a dozen terminals, just like the U.S. terminals, you know, now it's getting to a halt because of the changing uh, natural gas market situation. China also needs gas from uh, Central Asia and Russia. The one from Turkmenistan, the construction just started this year. So it will finish in a couple of years. So they, in the long distance pipelines from, uh, from Turkmenistan all the way to Shanghai and to Guangzhou uh, in, in the south, total length is about 7,000 kilometers, something four or 5,000 miles. It's really long distance. That in China is called second West East pipeline because they already built their own first. So you can see the gap is also growing. China will become a net importer of natural gas. So in the two types of fossil energy, China is uh, set to become a net importer. Even coal will be a net importer. So that's how kind of serious the situation on this area, uh, in this area is. Because of this kind of uh, changing situation, uh, a new issue emerged only a couple of years ago, particularly at the beginning, since the beginning of this decade, energy security. In, in the past, energy security is not so important in the sense that China is pretty self-sufficient in energy supply, but now it's different. So energy security become issue, and then become a global issue. I have uh, two slides to show um, the, the, how the Chinese overseas investment. To summarize very quickly, they, they have several state oil companies, uh, ranging from CNPC all the way to Sinopec, Sinarc, CNOC, and Sinocam even, and the non-oil company of CITIC and another company. They are all going out looking for oil and gas. And of course, you, you, uh, we have to put in a context that some other countries are doing the same thing. India, uh, also very uh, active, and uh, Malaysia and Korea now is very uh, active in, in looking uh, for oil. But China is certainly generates most of the front page coverage in this area because they are aggressive, they are act, uh, very active. So we look at this issue maybe in two aspects broadly, kind of um, positive or, or negative or, or concern. The positive, you may think that given the stagnation of the global oil supply today, given the fact that uh, international majors are reluctant to invest or they have limited access 
to the resources because of the sovereign issue, or give it a reluctance of uh, the OPEC countries to invest or come up with their own money to invest. This third kind of force in this area by China, India, they, you know, their investment will help kind of generate additional supply of oil. So that will help the overall situation, but only to a certain limit because Chinese and Indians, they don't do a lot of risk upstream exploration. They do a lot of development. They buy existing assets. They go into aging fields. They go to existing fields. It helps, but to a certain extent. That's the positive. And on a negative and a concern part, of course, politically, we know that China and India, of course, they are too, but China in the most, they are going to countries of concern to the US. They go to Sudan, big producer, and they go to Myanmar and Nigeria, some other African countries, and uh, also South African countries, uh, uh, South, uh, Latin American, some Latin American countries. Now, those are the political concerns to the West. And economically, there is another issue that China in you know, overseas, because they are backed by the government, not directly like uh, organized by the government, but they're backed by the government, they are state oil companies. So they may compete aggressively, and which also means unfairly. So to private companies who abide by the rule of law and rule of economics, rule that uh, they feel that this is unfair competition by the state oil companies of, uh, from China. So that's another uh, big concern of this overseas push. But you know, we will continue to see more and more, you, you will see more and more kind of uh, front page news or, uh, in this area about China's acquisition here and there, and they, they will show up in, in um, Actually, even, even today, depending on how you define overseas investment, if you include labor service and engineering service, Chinese companies already in up to 70 countries in the world. If you narrow down to uh, equity uh, investment, at least a do a two dozens, uh, it's, it's, it's about 40, 40 countries that uh, they have interest, including Canada, Peru, you know, Kazakhstan, uh, Turkmenistan, uh, and, and also African countries everywhere. So, the overseas investment of China is part of the overall sort of, sort of energy security concern, which they are forming. China is forming their strategies. Some of the strategies are quite similar across the board. India, China, Japan, Korea, they have the same strategies, how to diversify, how to, you know, overseas investment. Some are new to China. Certainly China is a new player in the area, which is, may affect neighbors. Like, like Japan has been dealing with the energy security issue for three, four decades, five decades, is uh, now they have to deal, deal with the situation that China is, is a new player. And here's what Asia is facing. Although we know that for those of you who are in the energy sector, we know proven oil reserves are not quite accurate, but at least it's indicative. So today's proven reserves that are acceptable by international uh, norms at least, um, Asia is only 3% of the global reserves and the Middle East. Uh, Asia, I mean Asia Pacific, not including Middle East. Middle East is about 60% of the total but Asia consumes about 30% of oil consumption in the world. So that's how the big the gap is. So it's, it's, it's a common security issue facing Asia and China. Um, if if I, I may put in the perspective that uh, in, in a share, as a share of the production in the world versus consumption uh, in the world, Asia, it really have a big gap in oil, uh, you can see here, and small gap in natural gas, uh, pretty balanced in, in, in coal, but overall energy is, 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 is short and that short of energy, 80% of that coming from Middle East. So in terms of only the geological, ge geographical uh, kind of a, uh, distribution of source of supply, Asia is much more uh, dependent on Middle East. Of course, you can consider Middle East part of Asia. 
uh, just like European is very dependent on Russia, and the U.S. In a, only in a, in a physical term is much more diversified in terms of where it come, the oil come from. Only like 15% come from Middle East to this country. China is overall that, I uh, uh, just want to mention one thing, that in case you hear about that, China's official line is, we are pretty much self-sufficient, the Chinese official may say, because they do produce about 92% of all energy consumed in the country, which is true because of the sh because of presence of coal. But if you take out of coal, the share will be, will be quite different. And, 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 and also, even coal, China is heading towards net, imp net import, in, in import situation. So this 8% of net imports overall will continue to go up, maybe 10%, maybe 15, 20%. So that's the situation for China. Um, I, I'm going to end my uh, talk uh, very soon that, uh, to show that uh, um, the importance of China in Asia in energy thing is certainly uh, is, uh, can you know, speak for itself. For the past five years, for instance, China is responsible for two-thirds of the incremental oil demand in, in Asia. Over the next 10, 20 years, maybe another uh, 50, uh, 50 to 60 percent uh, of the oil uh, consumption, incremental oil consumption in Asia will come from, uh, from China. And um, in the U.S., you know, uh, uh, the share of the U.S. today is about 25 percent. If we're looking towards the next 15 years, that the share of China is certainly will continue to go up, but you can see the gap still there. So we don't see anytime soon China will consume more than the U.S. Uh, uh, does. But certainly if, if we put in a context of China and the U.S., U.S. is the largest one today, as most influential. China, as the second largest, is, is, it will be the one that grow the most in terms of oil consumption. That put in a context how these two countries deal with the situation. Very often, you know, unless there's a conflict, you know, very often there's a lot of common interest for sure. You know, one thing is uh, high oil prices uh, negatively affect China, certainly, because they import 50%. Also negatively affect the U.S., you know, however uh, dependent on foreign oil. That, uh, uh, so we are on the same boat in, in, in a way. So how to stabilize the oil prices and how to form the, the consuming, uh, the, the block of consuming country through like IEA, China is not a member of IEA, International Energy Agency, how to, how to use this kind of uh, 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 logic to, uh, to stabilize the energy supply is a common interest, and also how to ensure the supply of uh, the supply route of, of energy. Uh, so not only U.S. has a responsibility for itself, but also for its allies in Asia, which happen to be China has a free right on that issue too. So in many, uh, unless there is a serious conflict, conflict, there is a lot of common interest for these two countries. And also China needs a lot of technologies to clean up the coal and to uh, develop nuclear power, which is very rapidly grow. And U.S. has a lot of business opportunities there. But on the other hand, because this kind of situation, situation that the, the largest consuming country, second largest, coming to, you know, very close to each other, if something goes wrong, energy um, can be served as a catalyst to make things very, very worse. So I, I will leave it there, and I'm sure you have many issues I don't cover, but I'm happy to answer questions later. Thank you. Aloha, y'all. And uh, thank you so much for inviting us here uh, to talk about China. Um, I don't doubt that China is the story. China is a story. 
and what it is doing in its legal system and how its legal system develops uh, and will develop is also a very important part, not just economics, it supports economics. Uh, it's also legal development is driven by economics and China's desire to uh, develop. Um, I want to say a little bit about legal reform generally just to uh, situate us and then look at some areas and issues um, of concern, some of which have been around for a long time, some of which seem more recent. The current Chinese legal system is really, and the laws, including all the commercial business laws that we deal with, um, is really the product of less than 30 years, just 29 years of development. And many of these laws have been revised several times, often in a very major way, in this brief period. So this is an enormous achievement. This is really a remarkable achievement that the Chinese have been able to set up a legal system to reinstitute the courts, the institutions that they destroyed during the Cultural Revolution, and to produce now um, a fairly complete set of laws, which wasn't true in 1979 when they first welcomed foreign investment. No contracts law, no corporations law, no partnerships law. Um, and that is really, uh, that is really changed. It's a very, very impressive legal and intellectual achievement and absolutely necessary, I believe, for the continuation of economic reform. This is not the old command economy. But there are certainly many issues. Um, you can't produce a system in 30 years that's going to work as well as a system that's developed over a much longer time. Uh, China's courts also within that system are very weak institutions. Um, they don't often have the power to enforce their decisions. Um, they are often captives of local business, uh, local industries, um, and they are appointed and paid by local governments, not from the center. And this affects enforcement in many ways. Even the Chinese are outsiders if they are outside um, their own uh, particular uh, province. Um, there is a, also a political issue. Um, the Communist Party Political Legal Committee is really still the most important uh, legal institution in the country and by far, by far more important than the courts. In um, adapting and adopting so much legislation, um, some people have argued that what you have in China, we now have a tremendous amount, but what you have is a kind of rolling uncertainty about the law. The things that were issues in 1979, we didn't know. And many of those have been worked out. We feel very secure with the laws and regulations in place, but later ones uh, and later gaps uh, still um, exist. Uh, some laws, usually the general laws, are vague, and you have to look to implementing measures and regulations that should be subordinate actually provide you uh, with um, the details that matter uh, in the law. Um, so these are, uh, these are issues. I, I took this title, Stanley Lubman wrote an article called um, Looking for Law in China, and he said, I've been looking for law in China for 40 years. Um, well, I wanted to say it's there, it's there, but it's, 
uh, it's still not a complete uh, system, and a lot of important stuff comes out all the time. For example, we've had a series just in the last several years, major pieces falling into place, like the enterprise bankruptcy law. Um, Some um, legislation we're not too sure about, the anti-monopoly law, which in theory is going to be a good thing, but the regulations have not come out, so we don't actually know uh, how they're going to define dominant share of market or how this will be enforced, Uh, but it certainly will be um, out there. The um, labor contract law, which has been very controversial among American businessmen, certainly, um, because it requires not just written contracts for work, uh, but um, short probation periods after which you can only be fired under certain circumstances and often with a good severance payment. It requires um, unions, and there really is only one union Uh, in the PRC. There are no choices of union. And um, it may affect the anti-compete contracts that many businesses want. So it's certainly going to increase costs. You may have the union approving changes in work rules. Uh, It's not certain. And many business people uh, have been concerned that this would be enforced in a much more severe fashion against them uh, than against local businesses, and that's almost certainly uh, going to be uh, true. Uh, One major law finally has come out. This does um, remove a lot of gaps, Uh, the property law, which is really an excellent law. Uh, Before this law came out and went into effect, uh, people were selling, buying and selling land use rights, which is the system that has allowed China to develop not just shopping malls, but all the housing that you see, all those high-rises. And the Chinese government is selling off not the land, but the right to use it. It's actually a pretty good deal. Um, This isn't how they analyze it, by the way. But um, in the 1950s, the Chinese Communist Party uh, expropriated all the land without compensation. And now it's selling it back to the Chinese people at very high prices. No, this is not the party view. No, that's what it's, it's selling it back. Actually, not even, it's not selling the land back. It's selling the right to use it for a certain purpose for a specified period of time. Um, But this law now does define and protect many rights that people were, they were, they were dealing with this, but they didn't have the kind of legal foundation that you would wish. So this, this is a major, this is a major achievement. Um, There are a few areas. Those are areas that I've discussed have been for some time. Um, Access to information, uh, access we want, you know, often as business people, we'd like to know uh, certain things. There are business people who'd like to be in publishing and more news. You can't do that. Uh, That is uh, restricted. Um, China's uh, definition, if there is a definition of state security, which can affect business environment as well, is uh, very unclear, very broad. Um, And while they um, aren't interested in y'all having access to every piece of information that you might want, uh, they're very, very interested in the information uh, that y'all have. Uh, And um, Amnesty International, by the way, estimates that the Chinese government has at least 30,000 people whose full-time job is to monitor the Internet emails, uh, et cetera. So they may not be reading your email, but they can. 
Um, and they have, by contrast, if we look at the Environmental Protection Agency in China and a lot of excellent laws that they have put on the books, um, the estimate is they have about 200 uh, people uh, trying to enforce those laws. So the Chinese party has made its own choice of priority there. Um, now, generally, if we look at this system, which I think is very impressive and totally, simply totally recreated in this period, and so much of it, uh, some issues, however, we have to say, will time fix them, or do they require a more serious fix? Do they have to really think, uh, how can we modify the system to make it worse, work? Well, worse, I don't know if they could do But work, yes, they need to make it work. Um, one issue, of course, dear to lawyers' hearts, you want to see a more independent legal profession, especially if they represent you there. Um, you really need uh, judges who are appointed by and paid by the central government and not, not local governments if you want them to enforce against local entities and to represent fairly outsiders. A lot has been done in education of judges. Initially, they had no education. Uh, I still think, um, being practical, you don't want to go to court. But this is, this is an issue that uh, the Chinese have discussed. How can we make the courts work? Um, they need something that can reconcile somebody, whether a court, unlikely, or some other body that can reconcile the conflicting laws. All these laws being produced, but how do some of them fit together? And that requires an institutional change. Uh, will they address these problems? Academics and professionals do, uh, but they don't have, in the end, uh, the final power. Uh, many people would like to see, certainly outsiders would like to uh, end the involvement of the party's political legal committee um, but uh, when legal reform gets in the way of the party, it clearly chooses its position. So I think in the long run, they will have to address some of these issues, but I don't expect to see this. I really don't, uh, because it's hard, and it would cost money. Um, and it might interfere with some people's interests, which are all things we can understand here. Um, more specifically, will WTO standards be implemented? 2001 in China's accession is also considered another a time at which um, there was a great push to develop the legal system and to meet the standards that China agreed to meet. They didn't say they would set up a system we would like or that it would be an ideal system, uh, but they did promise increased transparency, impartial administrative review, and they certainly have taken some action, and those are very concrete steps uh, that um, I think it's uh, possible. We've already seen some progress, and they have begun drafting and already drafted laws that they were required to. Uh, a lot of people have been uh, disappointed in market access. Uh, they're rated all the time, but I think in terms of the legal system, they have made some efforts. They used to have uh, what they called internal regulations. That is now published. So you would say, well, we would like to do this. And they would say, oh, no, I'm sorry. But that would violate X regulations. And you'd say, oh, could I please take a look at those? And they'd say, oh, no, I'm sorry, those are internal. But trust us, you can't do it. Um, so this is really, we've, we've gone away from that. And uh, they made big strides there. Uh, well, what should we do in the meantime? Um, well, I think you just have to be realistic 
we have to be realistic. It's always good to have a realistic uh, attitude. Um, you're dealing with a very different legal culture. The U.S. is very much a rights culture. Everything is analyzed in terms of rights. You're dealing with a bureaucratic culture in which you're trying to balance interests. So it's a very uh, different system. I hope it will change, but at the moment it's different. Well, individually, um, whenever we deal with such a system, we have to try to limit our risks. Uh, I put in a few um, suggestions. Y'all who have done business know these suggestions. You have to know your partner, or now you can have wholly foreign-owned um, enterprises. You can ditch a partner if you feel you can't do this. Due diligence is super important. Um, authorization is very important. Negotiating every detail um, is very important. I don't know if Chinese negotiators still say, well, we're Chinese. We don't really, we just like very general agreements. You know, it's just Americans who want, no, that's not true. So you really, you're trying to avoid, um, you're trying to avoid disagreements later. They will happen anyway. Um, you want to go to arbitration, not courts. You're not dealing with um, you're not dealing with important, powerful institutions, and there's a lot of pressure on them not to take cases that would be politically sensitive or difficult, and that's often foreign cases. They just don't take them, uh, or they lose your paperwork. That's, that's quite uh, common. China uh, is high corruption area, and we still have to comply, unfortunately, with the um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, that's very important. Um, the ambassador has mentioned uh, intellectual property issues. Oh, that's so difficult. It's very difficult. But some people have been successful. They've been extremely aggressive in dealing with them. Uh, and um, that's, uh, that's certainly uh, possible. And finally, uh, the ambassador noticed that I put in, I just slipped in my last suggestion um, which to a lawyer is a very natural suggestion, actually, uh, and that is, um, you know, seek advice of counsel. Actually, it does make a difference, uh, especially of those people who have um, a lot of experience dealing with some of this legal uncertainty. Uncertainty. In the long run, I'm very, I'm very optimistic because I, I do still teach in China. I deal with young legal professionals and students. And whatever the party believes, which probably is not in the rule of law, a lot of these young lawyers-to-be and judges-to-be, they really believe in it. And I hope that they will see the system. That's when it'll change, when it's a system they want, and that will benefit us too. Uh, in the meantime, we have to be careful. But thank you all so much for your attention. Thank you all. I don't know who to direct this question towards, but I saw a quote that there are more people in China learning English today than there are that speak in the United States. And wondering about the process of uh, how children get selected to learn English, is, is, it, is it competitive? Uh, is there testing to get that, that, that skill set, or is it just anybody that asks for it? The students. I'm, there might be others here who are more who, um, I, my understanding is in most, I remember at the time I was living in Shanghai and everything I've heard since, that, that in, in the school system, 
they are making a quite systematic effort to introduce English, including at the elementary uh, level. So if you start getting all of those uh, students studying uh, English, uh, you very easily rack up uh, huge numbers. So um, that, that's my understanding, is that it's that become by far the, the preferred language for, for, for China made a, made a decision that that was the international language that they wanted their students to learn. And, and, they're, all, and they're all learning it. They're all, they're all studying it in school. Um, is that anybody else? I just, want, I just want to add, yes, that is the case, that uh, the, the way they do it, uh, you know, like from 20 years ago, you start from middle school or even high school, and they simply lower, lower the, the grade to uh, gradually to elementary, and also vary from province to province, some more aggressive to, uh, to a very young age. Some, I, it's not quite like a, you, you, uh, you, only certain people can do. Once they lower to that level, all people will, will do. That's why the number is so high, so, so big. And just to add, uh, in the late 1990s, the Communist Party decided that all Chinese need to know three things, to drive a car, to use a computer, and to learn English. <laughs> uh, Allison, this is a question directed to you. When China comes up with suddenly uh, a new, new statutory law like that property code, where are they looking for their source, and to any extent is it Anglo-American law? Oh, that's a very... That's a very good question because um, China has more or less, it is more like civil law countries than Anglo-American. Um, however, they have not limited themselves when they have drafted new legislation. They have not limited themselves just to uh, Germany or France or clear civil law jurisdictions. And they have read very widely so it depends partly on what the area is. Their uh, securities law is, um, actually has been influenced by the U.S. Uh, because we trained in some of the early legal people who came to the U.S., uh, we got them so instead of Britain. And so when they went home, um, they produced a different system, but it has U.S. elements. And so you will find, they say, we try to, look, we try to survey and look at the best kind of law. Even the codes, the contract um, law and then the property law, which are key parts of a um, continental-style code, uh, and are structured that way, they have looked at a number of clearly American concepts. So they have tried to go out, and they have some terrific people doing it now, uh, not just people making it up somewhere as 25 years ago. So they will look all over. You mentioned uh, earlier that there was $1.8 trillion of uh, American debt or American reserves held in China. Is that correct? Uh, no. The foreign exchange reserves in China are $1.8 trillion. So that is what the State Administration for Foreign Exchange uh, owns. About estimates are a billion of those are invested in U.S. debt securities. A One trillion. A trillion. One trillion. Okay. One trillion. Yeah. Sorry. So The zeros, yeah. In other words, in, in layman's terms, uh, we, uh, we have a lot of our debt funded by the Chinese. Okay. D what concern do you have, uh, if any, of how that can be used economically in a negative way or how much control over our policies could that imply 
when you're holding that much of our debt? Kind of two parts to the answer. This, this is an excellent question, and that's actually a very difficult question to answer, but there are kind of two parts to it. The first part is, is the Chinese are so heavily involved in us that we, for the Chinese, are like Fannie and Freddie for the federal government. I mean, we're so big, we're so important in terms of us consuming a lot of Chinese exports, but also just in terms that they have so much capital tied up in U.S. capital markets that they would be very loath to go ahead and do something radical because it really would hurt their investment returns. So this is kind of the first part of the answer. So they're steady as she goes. Uh, in that sense, they're very similar to the Japanese. The difference with the Japanese, and here it gets interesting, is, is that the Chinese are not allies. Uh, the way they handle their foreign exchange reserves is less transparent, quite deliberately. They have, as a percentage, less tied up in treasuries, which have to be declared to the New York Fed, and actually more tied up in GSE debt, so in Fannie and Freddie debt. This is something that concerns the Chinese very much. Uh, from what I've heard uh, in various newspaper reports, they are the biggest single foreign investor in Fannie and Freddie debt, bonds issued by the two. Uh, they also channel all of their investments through London, uh, they don't like doing it through New York, uh, because, and they do it through intermediaries, uh, so that nobody is really sure what is going on. The Chinese love secrecy, as you just heard from Allison as well. Now the question becomes, how can they leverage it? If you're this big a creditor, you cannot just go ahead and threaten the United States, we're going to pull out, because you can you know, destroy the markets in which you would like to sell into. Uh, and so that's not really good. But on the other hand, the Chinese are known, and we have cases, recent historical cases, that the Chinese use their economic power for political benefits. Uh, and so it cannot be excluded. Um, I always say that I think the litmus test, uh, kind of like a symptom, you know, when you know the patient is sick, you look for the symptoms. For me, the symptom is when the United States gets loath to sell major arms equipment to Taiwan. I mean, when, when we start to see the federal government being kind of very reticent in sending, you know, selling things like F-16s or major kind of arms equipment to Taiwan, then we know mm, they might, the Chinese might have more leverage than we think. But so far, that's not really the case. We also have a lot of leverage over the Chinese because we are a big debtor and we're a big consumer of their goods. So it goes both ways for now. Uh, but certainly there is opportunities for misunderstandings or just knee-jerk reactions that could be very negative for both sides. Ambassador, would you like to give some closing comments on this subject? And that'll be our last. I was just thinking there are opportunities for all that, and there's opportunities for mischief also. Um, <laughs> and the example that Chris was uh, citing of a recent example in which we know that China did use its financial might for political purposes was a case of, uh, of Costa Rica. Uh, as, as some of you are aware, there's a a long sort of war that goes on between, uh, diplomatic war between Taiwan and China over whether countries uh, have diplomatic relations with China or with Taiwan. There are only 23 countries left today that still have diplomatic relations with, uh, with Taiwan. Uh, but one of the big uh, losses of Taiwan recently was of Costa Rica. It was last year, I think. And, um, and we now know it was only public or publicly there were there was some information about it before, but it was only publicly revealed uh, in the last couple of weeks that the way uh, Beijing sealed the deal was to agree to, uh, uh, to fund uh, $300 million in Costa Rican, uh, Costa Rican debt. And um, that that, uh, that financing, which I guess the Costa Ricans were having some trouble getting, uh, you know, 
rolling over. The, that, that, that agreement from the Chinese uh, was kind of the last, uh, the last icing on the cake that had Costa Rica flip over and, uh, and recognize Beijing and de-recognize uh, Taipei. So, you know, that's an example of, uh, of uh, one we know about and, and that, that, that they can use their, their leverage that way. On the, on the issue of uh, Taiwan arms sales, since it's something I'm uh, heavily and personally involved in that, that subject, um, there has been a certain amount of sort of uh, misrepresentation of the situation in some reports that have been out, which give the impression that the, that the Bush administration is not going to follow through on eight items which were uh, we agreed to, uh, to sell um, several years ago and which now need to be, in which the, the Taiwan legislature, frankly, was very slow to pass the money to buy the arms. Uh, so that's why the whole thing dragged out for years. It wasn't because of us. It was because Taiwan was not budgeting the money. But they finally did. And now the next step would be for the administration, the executive branch, to notify Congress of the sale. And uh, that was uh, had gotten held up for a number of reasons, including the Beijing Olympics and the president going to the Olympics. Uh, it needs to happen between now and the end of the year. Um, my hunch is it's going to happen. So the F-16s is another item because that never got on the formal agenda. And my hunch is there isn't enough time left in this administration to do it. I know I'm speaking for everyone here. Thank you all for an extraordinary job of presenting a very complicated subject so succinctly and well. Thank you for being with us here in Fort Worth. Thank you. Thank for more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.